When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. Welcome to the Snoop Podcast. I, I paused there. I wasn't sure if we were recording, but we are. And uh, the first thing to say, I'm Dave Hendon. Of course, Michael McMullen is with me as well. First thing to say, <laughs> and I don't know why this is, but last week's podcast was a sensation. Uh, I get the, uh, I only, I only get the anal- the analytics, if indeed that's what you call them, from Apple. So if you download on Apple Podcasts, you can see how many people are, are downloading and where they're from, etc. And for some reason, last week's uh, more people downloaded last week's than any of the others we've done all year. So I don't know why that was, but thank you very much. But well, well, it's, it's, you know, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it's clearly you know because there was a week of Phil Yates, and then I came back. Ah. It's a bit like sort of the Elvis comeback special in '68, or you know when, <laughs> when when Bobby Ewing stepped out of the shower after missing a season of Dallas. It was basically our equivalent to that. Well, well, you say that, but what I'm worried about is that this week's could be our equivalent of be here now, an, an, an eagerly awaited follow-up that falls flat. So uh, let's hope not. Um, that if if you're if you're under the age of I don't know thirty, uh, that's a reference to uh, the the third Oasis album. I remember going to buy it the day it was released because obviously they were unbelievably big in the 90s and their first two albums were really good um and you know really uh, really well thought of and so the third one everyone thought would be the same and it wasn't it was terrible and it was the songs were too long and Noel Gallagher will tell you himself um they were doing a lot of drugs at the time uh, I don't know why we, I don't know why we got into that because this is a snooker podcast um but uh, anyway ne- later on we'll be talking about um first time world champions and in specifically how they fared the following season and indeed at the Crucible. So obviously Judd Trump, we're going to be seeing uh, at the end of the month how he fares at the Crucible. Will he break the so-called Crucible curse? Should we even be using that phrase? Uh, we will find out later on. We've also got plenty of emails, again, from this bumper sensation of last week's podcast it certainly uh, it certainly made up for that terrible one we did on the hotel wi-fi that time that, that was if that was the low point then maybe last week was the high point i think it was uh, going to take a lot to make up for that but uh, but i think we pulled it off last week and no doubt we will again over the next hour or so 
In fact, I've just realised, um, and we will get to the snooker in a minute, I, I promise, but I've just realised last week we were talking about uh, Paul Simon's Graceland album. Um, I won't go into why now if you didn't hear it. Uh, and there's a, it occurs to me there's a track on the album called All Around the World, as indeed there is on Be Here Now. It's almost like this is this is put together. I can promise you it isn't. Uh, that's just occurred to me. Shortly, we'll be discussing who will emerge as the best player from all around the world at the Crucible in a few weeks' time. There it is. There it is. Yeah. Right. Uh, you've, you've, you've steered us back on to what we're here to talk about, which is yeah. snooker. Someone had and, to. Yeah. And before we get to the emails, I wanted to mention a great article in the Metro yesterday, Tuesday, as we speak now, by Phil Hay, Metro Online. Uh, it's about Fergal O'Brien. He interviewed Fergal, who's been approached since 1991, and clearly he's not, he's not going to go away quietly because his tour place is under threat. He's going to have to do well in the World Championship qualifiers to stay on the tour. He's already said, look, if I fall off, I'll go to Q school. I'm not too proud. Um, he, he said, "He said, you know, you, you'll know when I've retired, when I've died. So that tells you that, that he is determined to stick around. And and uh, it was a great piece. And Phil, actually, I don't know Phil personally, but he does a lot of snooker on, on the Metro Online, as indeed Nick, Nick Metcalf does in, in the newspaper. And what links them, the two of them, is they, they are both snooker fans and they want to promote the game. And these pieces are really good and worth checking out. The one with Fergal is really, really good. He did one actually with Anthony Hamilton as well just before the Championship League and Anthony was explaining why he wouldn't be playing in it. And, uh, you know, it's good to have these uh, these articles, not about the usual suspects either, about people who, and this sort of gives the light to the old thing, oh, there's no characters in the game. Actually, if you can be bothered to ring these people up and speak to them, you'll find there's all sorts of great stories. I remember the day Fergal got beaten 20 years ago in the quarterfinal of the World Championship, the only time he was in it. And he did his press conference and all the rest of it. And he went off and got changed. And he came and sat. I don't know if you remember this, but he came and sat with us in the press room for the whole afternoon, just chatting away. And he's got so much to say about everything. And yet Fergal's actually, you know, by snooker player standards, really well educated and really well informed uh, about what's going on in the world. And it's just just a joy to have in the sport. And I really hope he keeps his place on the tour. I was particularly fortunate, you know, at the time when I was going to an awful lot of tournaments and Ken and Fergo were both doing really well and I was getting loads of coverage in the Irish media as a result of, of the fact that they were doing well. And th- the fact that it was those two and they're both so brilliant to deal with, both mm-hmm. in terms of obliging you with their time, but also trying to give you something that's worth reporting on, trying to give you something interesting in their comments or whatever. What a blessing that's been over the years. And I hope they stay on the circuit a bit longer. Ken, of course, got a wild card the last time he was relegated. You wouldn't be surprised if he did miss out on keeping his place, if he was given another discretionary wild card for another two years. Fergal, I don't think, has any chance of getting that. But not. I wasn't surprised at all to see him say that he'd go back to Q school. And you know what? If he misses out, he'll be back next year and the year after and the year after. He'll basically end up like his fellow Dubliner, Desi Sheehan, who I think is still going to school in, in his 70s. Absolutely. And there's also, there's, you remind me, there's, a, there's an interview with Ken, a video, video interview with Ken on the WST website, uh, where he's talking about, he's got the same thing about his tour survival and um, he, and trying to get back to the crucible again. And it, I just, I mean, not that I needed reminding, but I just thought, you know, he just remind you what a, what a really good guy Ken is. Mm. You know, great, great figure in the sport and still still loving it at the age of 50. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see him qualify again, but of course uh, it's going to be very difficult to qualify. More cutthroat than ever, I guess, now they've reduced the, the matches as well. And with the pressure of tour survival for all the players there that are involved in that, it's going to be tough. Worth saying though, if any player outside the top 64 qualifies for the Crucible, they'll get a two-year card because that's something that's been instituted. Now, of course, for a lot of players, qualifying will get them in the 64 anyway. But if, say, the world number 120, whoever that is, were to qualify, 
they get a tour card. So that's another kind of incentive, I guess, to uh, to make it to the Crucible. I guess the reason for that isn't the Q score going to be going on at the same time as the mm. World Championship. Uh, and it has happened before. I think it's happened a couple of times that someone has qualified for the Crucible. But because they hadn't done anything for the rest of the season, they ended up being relegated. Graham Horn, I remember, back in the 90s. We were talking about him when we did that uh, piece about unlikely Crucible qualifiers. when he actually got relegated because he hadn't achieved much else over the previous season and a bit. So that, that had to happen. Obviously, it's such a cliche to say these are extraordinary times. But clearly they are. And that's why the Q school and the championship will be going on at the same time. So that was a decision that absolutely had to be made. But as you say, it's, I say more likely than not, it won't make any difference anyway, because generally anyone who's qualified for the world championship, when you get that many points, you'll probably be in the 64 anyway, or at the very least get in on the one year list. Yeah, you would think so. Um, OK, so we're going to move on to the emails. I've actually just discovered one that I haven't written down. See, there is a little bit of preparation for this. Uh, no, we've had a lot this week, actually, so I'm not going to be able to read them all out, but I'm going to start with a very straightforward question. I like this. It's a very direct question. doesn't even say hello or anything. It doesn't say, doesn't say I love the podcast, none of that. Just straight in with the question. It's from James George. Thank you, James, for getting in contact. And he says this. If a player made a 147 with a free ball and another player made a 147 with all blacks, would the one with the free ball get a share of the high break price? Well, the answer to that question is yes, they would, because they'd be identical breaks in terms of the figure. However, if there was a maximum prize, the player who made the 147 with the free ball would not get a share of that because it wouldn't be a maximum. A maximum with a free ball is 155. So let's say the high break prize is £5,000 and the maximum prize is £20,000. The player who made the 147 with the free ball will get 2500 The other player who made the actual maximum will get 2500 but they'd also get twenty grand maximum prize. They actually had to stipulate this a few years ago in the rules because it wasn't written down. And, of course, there could have been trouble if someone had made one. Uh, there could have been trouble at 16 red 147. Well, the, uh, but you don't have maximum prizes anymore, though. This is the thing. And it, it's it's that thing where if 20 are made in the season. I'll tell you what could be controversial. I wonder, have they got this stipulated anywhere? If, say, next season we did get the – we got 19 traditional 147s and then somebody made a 147 with a free ball – I wonder, could they argue then that the 20 had been made and the million pounds would have to be shared out? I wonder well, if that's stipulated anyway. I think it is. I think now it is stipulated when it, just the word maximum, there's like an asterisk, and then it will explain it's either 147 or, or if a free ball, 155. So I think it is written down. Right. Let's, okay. let's, hope, let's hope in a way it isn't, and it happens, though, because that would be hilarious. We um, get a whole podcast out of that. <laughs> we move on. Now, I mentioned last week, rather grandly, I've got to say, how popular we were in Hungary. Yeah. Um, but I did notice we got again in the, we got again in the top 100 uh, sports podcasts in Hungary. Now, that sounds to some like small beer, but consider how many podcasts there are. We were actually – I looked to see what was 91st, and it was an Arsenal podcast. That would interest you. Oh, um, yeah. So, I think of any Hungarian connection with Arsenal, though, wasn't the guy? I think it was a guy back in the eighties, maybe who was from Hungary. Anyway, go on. Well, you could you could equally say, what's the Hungarian connection with snooker? The answer to both is that they, of course, they watch them on the TV. And we've had a, a great email here from Hannah. She says, "My name's Hannah, and I'm from now. My pronunciation is probably wrong, but Debrecen, Debrecen in Hungary, which is the second largest city, and in my mind, is the most welcoming and interesting city." I think I've they only, played Manchester yeah. United once, actually, in, in Europe. But go on, anyway. Think, there you go. De, de, de I think it is. But okay. Yeah. No, no, I'll take that, yeah, to Brechen, then. Yeah. Okay. 
I've only followed snooker since this year when my father took me to the European Masters in Austria, which many of your listeners will know borders Hungary, so it was a convenient location for us. I've been obsessed with snooker since then, and after watching Neil Robertson win 9-0 in the final, he's the player I enjoy watching more than any other. Yes, even with his interesting hairstyle at the recent Coral Tournament. I recently graduated from college, and I also turned 20 years old last week. I'm hoping to pursue a career in snooker refereeing after being inspired by many of the upcoming female referees. My father was born in Manchester and has been to many ranking events, so I've been asking him approximately 20 questions a day on the history of snooker. In response, he presented me with several books this week and sent me links to various snooker statistic websites. This sounds like a perfect week to me. that was me speaking, not, not Anna, by the way. Uh, it, it, she, she goes on. His way of suggesting that I educate myself on Snooker's long history. I do enjoy his stories and anecdotes. He's already mapping out what I need to do to pursue a career in Snooker refereeing. My dream is to referee the final one day at the Crucible between Ulian Boyko, the promising young Ukrainian player, and Sam Craigie, who impressed my father and I during the recent Championship League. Of course, Boyko is going to become the youngest person ever to play in the World yeah. Championship. Yeah, 40, 40. Yeah. yeah, She says, uh, I believe these players could become top seeds in the future with the right coaching, support and mindset. Now, you're not going to enjoy this next bit because it involves me. But she said, right. okay. <laughs> she said, an important part of this dream is that you, Mr. Hendon, will be in the commentary box and can say, <laughs> and I can say, Mr. Hendon, do you know I'm Hannah who emailed your podcast in 2020? Well, Hannah, I hope the same, purely because it means I'll still be working, which <laughs> Which will be which will be good. She's moved on to the uh, last week. We did our semi-final predictions for the World Championship, and her and her father have come up with these four names. Now this is controversial for reasons that will become apparent when I read them out. Okay, these are their four predictions: Neil Robertson, Mark Selby, Sean Murphy, and John Higgins. Well, the problem there, Hannah, is three of them, Robertson, Selby, and Murphy, are in the same quarter. So oh, obviously, yeah. obviously they can't all get to the semis. Um, so she's like, my- she hasn't even started reffing yet, and she's already trying to alter the draw and <laughs> So maybe go go and look at the the, uh, the first round draw again, because if that if it is those four, then someone's gone wrong, I guess. Um, and she says the eventual winner. Well, I am biased. It'll be the thunder from down under, although not another whitewash as it was in Austria. Thank you for mentioning Hungary. I wish you stay, a safe stay in Sheffield when the tournament begins. So that's from Hannah and her father, Tom, originally from Altrincham in Greater Manchester. Well, it's great that you're listening and thank you for those comments and good luck with the uh, the refereeing. There are a lot of referees now from around Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, actually, and particularly females. So that's, uh, you know, it just it shows you that it's not only seeing players on TV that inspires people, but actually seeing the fact that women from these countries are taking to, to officiating. It's good that that's inspiring Hannah to do the same. We wish yeah. you well with it. Yeah, and it couldn't be more different. I mean, the traditional image of a referee 20, 25 years ago was sort of a retired, you know, policeman from somewhere in the north of England or Glasgow or somewhere like that. It's changed so much now. And, you know, she is actually in a strong position because the, well, under the various names, World Snooker, WPBSA, WST, whatever they've been called over the years, for a long time now, they've really been giving uh, uh, overseas referees, uh, as in non-British, every opportunity because they actually specifically want to see that because it's still the case even after all this time that from the playing point of view the game is still very much British dominated with just a few exceptions and they want to give it as much of an international flavour as possible so if you're coming from abroad it definitely isn't harder now obviously you've got to overcome obstacles of getting to Britain which is still where most of the events are played but if you can do that then you're actually at an advantage, I think, if you come from uh, Eastern Europe, Hungary or any of those countries. So she might as well pursue it. She's certainly got, got every chance if she's hungry enough. Oh, there it is. There it is right at the end. 
Right at the end. Okay, we, if, if next week we drop in that chart, that's entirely down to what you just said there. Okay, our next email is from Ian Lewis. And Ian writes, thank you for the great podcast. Enjoy listening regularly. I enjoyed both the Championship League and Tour Championship. I thought they were executed excellently. Great to have Snooker back. But I do have a couple of thoughts, especially the first one, which I haven't heard much discussion on. How do you see the lack of ticket sales affecting snooker? How can venues like the Crucible hold the World Championships without punters coming through the door? What are the financial ramifications to WST and how sustainable is it? Will sponsors continue to commit and put up the same amount of money if things continue this way? Well, and we'll come on to Ian's second point in a minute. But, of course, this week um, there was a press release put out saying that actually there are still conversations going on between WST and the British government in terms of can they allow some sort of audience in? It probably won't be the full audience can they allow, say, I don't know, 200, 300 people into the crucible and for, all, for it all to be done safely? We just don't know about that. But it is interesting, though, from another perspective, which is, of course, the crucible in Sheffield is actually a theatre. The rest of the year, it puts on productions. Now, theatres at the moment have no idea in Britain when they can safely put productions back on. But if the World Snooker Championship goes ahead with an audience, then I think the Crucible and a lot of other theatres will be entitled to say, well, hang on, if, 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 if members of the public can pay their money and come in and sit down and watch a snooker tournament, why can't they come in, sit down and watch a play? It's the same principle. There's people on the stage, there's people backstage working on it. It's quite complicated to do certain plays, obviously, social distancing. I mean, Romeo and Juliet wouldn't be any good, I don't think. Um, but it's, it, there is a principle there. Now, I know that wasn't what you're asking. In terms of what you're asking... Um, in terms of the money that they would lose. I mean, ticket sales in terms of revenue per year at the Crucible is over two million. So it's a lot of money for sure. And that does have an impact. If over a long period from every tournament, you're not getting ticket revenue, then that is going to affect, I guess, prize money. Whether it affects sponsors, I don't know, because I think sponsors more more uh, over look towards television exposure. So if, if TV is still showing these events, then they're still getting their kind of money's worth. But yeah, it does have a knock-on effect. And obviously we don't know specifically the Crucible, but going forward next season, we still don't know when will people be allowed back in. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying about the sponsors. I think so long as it's on TV, there won't be much of an issue there. It's funny, like ticket revenue, maybe 20, 25 years ago, or even less than that, probably wouldn't have been that important because the tickets were sold off probably cheaper than they could have been charging for them. And a lot of the time, the business of promoting tournaments in the areas where they were taking place wasn't that great. So crowds weren't that good anyway. And I think tournaments were budgeted on the basis largely of sponsorship and TV revenue. And any money that was raised from selling tickets was regarded as a bonus. I think that was basically just, I don't know, probably pumped into paying for the player's bar, which at that time was probably quite a hefty, uh, quite a hefty sum in itself. Uh, but now, obviously, tickets are being sold for much bigger prices uh, because the demand is there, I suppose, to, to deal with it. And it's being regarded now as much more a part of the budget for the tournament. The, the question is, though, I mean, if they do, if they are allowed, and personally, I would say on balance, I, th I think the likelihood is that they'll have to go ahead without anyone there. But let's suppose they are given the green light to have some sort of attendance. How many people realistically in a, an arena of just under a thousand people can you have in there social distancing and also the crucible arena there are no windows there and as we know snooker famously the audience is talking all the time so these are all things that have to be overcome and I, I absolutely applaud every effort being made to have an environment created where you can have fans in there but 
I think ultimately there could be just one too many obstacles to overcome and the likelihood is we might have to go ahead behind closed doors. Yeah, I think they have to err on the side of caution because as Ian said in his email, you know, the Championship League and the Tour Championship were executed superbly. It was a safe bubble. They're doing the same at the qualifiers, although there's not a hotel on site. They're basically bussing people in. They're working it out so they have a few people there every day. It would be a shame to throw all that away at the Crucible. And what happens if you, you know, it's a fair question, I think, to ask what happens if you effectively abandon the bubble, let ordinary members of the public in who haven't been tested, there's some sort of outbreak of, of, of the virus, you know, say the day of the semi-finals, first day. What do we do then? Just shut the whole thing down. It's all been for nothing. So I, I think you've got to be careful. I can understand why they do want people in, but you've got to be very careful with this, I think. Yeah, and I think there will be, you know, the, the, ultimately they'll make the case as much as they can, but they'll probably go along with whatever, well, they will go along with whatever they're told to do in the end. The, the thing I find with all of it is it's just very, very confusing because if you're being told, OK, you can't have a thousand people sitting quietly watching the world championship and yet you can have the scenes we saw in london last weekend with <laughs> thousands of people out in the street side by side for hours on end all drinking and no action is taken about that you can understand why people would say well hang on a minute how come that's allowed to, to happen oh yes they're not supposed to be doing it but the fact is they still did it and nobody did anything about it and yet we can't have the crowd at the crucible this is the thing that i find very confusing about all of what's going on at the moment it's a confusing time for sure. Let's move yeah. on to his second point, Ian Lewis, this is. He said, my second point is specifically around Ronnie O'Sullivan, who I was both surprised but delighted to see play at the Championship League. He has always seemed against the idea of no crowds and playing at a leisure centre type scenario. But I think Ronnie enjoys playing to a crowd, which I think is ultimately why he will struggle at the Crucible. I know he's shy away from hordes of people around the venue, but I think he genuinely enjoys entertaining a crowd. I think we've kind of, we did cover this a little bit last week. You just yeah. don't know, do you? You just don't know with Ronnie. Yeah, it might, it might it, I mean, he does like entertaining, but it, it might be that the fewer people there, the less pressure on him. It might be that he feels flat. You just, we literally just don't know. But the fun, of course, as ever, he's finding out. Let's move on uh, to Guy Homerston, who says, uh, I've been a long-time fan of snooker and snooker scene podcast listener. I've listened intently to every episode, even though even though I've lost the power of speech, even the notorious hotel Wi-Fi edition. Uh, that was a, that was a. It's good to be notorious for something, though, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, to yeah. That status, yeah. Yeah, like what you mean, like Doctor Crippen. Yeah, yeah. yeah why not? <laughs> I'm writing as I've been interested to hear about other listeners recreating tournaments on the tables at home. Now, of course, this started with Dave Tyndall, who we'll get to, who we'll get to shortly. By the way, um, he he recreated the 1982 World Championship. Various other people, it turned out, have been sort of play, effectively playing their own tournaments down the years, keeping diaries, all sorts. And uh, Guy says, this is something I and my brother used to do regularly in the 1990s on our small table. And I'm talking small, maybe five by three foot at the most. I held my own tournaments and had my own ranking system, including a Masters for the top 16. I grew up in Cornwall, so the highlight of the calendar was undoubtedly the Regal Cornish, which nowadays would have to be called the Coral Cornish, I suppose. I struggle to recall who exactly won the tournaments, as there were many, although I do remember recording the frame scores meticul meticulously on paper, including writing in brackets in a different colour pen when someone had made a 30-plus break in a frame. This saved the system on CPACs, where a 50-plus break would merit a mention next to the frame score. I was surprised to hear also that in the reenactment of the 1982 World Championship, Steve Davies won. This is because in my tournaments, the favourites usually lost early on. I wanted the favourites to win, so the results were more realistic. So when I was playing as them, the pressure was on and missing became more likely. I mean, who knew that there was this much pressure involved in snooker? Right. 
When it came to the underdog's turn, I was relaxed, and despite almost trying to miss at times, everything went in. Therefore, my dreams of Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan finals were usually dashed in favour of, for example, Dave Harold v. Shoka Ali. And then he's put in brackets with no disrespect to them. <laughs> he said, I never imagined there were others out there doing the same thing and to the same extent. And us, perhaps, if the internet social media had been around, would have been aware of each other and there would have been pages, maybe support groups, where we could have shared each other's results. It seems there's a whole snooker subculture out there just being discovered. Keep up the good work with the podcast. It's good to have it during the lockdown. This I guy think from- Dave Harold and Showcat Ali practiced together, actually, for a while back in the day. Just when I heard those two names, it, it, it rang some sort of a bell that there's some sort of history there. I, I, I mean, what you're saying, we're, we're discovering all this now, but I remember all this going on back in the day that, this this was very much the thing. If you had a snooker table in your house, one of the old sort of six by threes, everyone was at this doing tournaments. And I remember doing one with my cousin who had a table in his house and we played a lot of the matches. But I think we'd done like a 64 man event. So we were never <laughs> going to get it finished by the time I went home. But he finished it on his own. I asked him a few weeks later who had won it. And I think he told me Roger Bales. Was almost certainly the first title he had won since. Didn't he win a pairs event with Clive? He did. Ago, yeah. And he also, because he became a bus driver, Roger Bales, and I, I believe he did win, they had like a bus driver's championship or something, which I think, you know, I mean, he would have been a shoe in for it, I guess. But yeah, he, yeah, I wasn't expecting to hear his name, though, today, I've got to be honest. Well, Brent, Brendan uh, Moore could have refed it, of course, because. Well, yes. He, a bus driver. He, he would certainly have seen that there was fair play going on. Yeah. Don't don't go down that road, yeah. please. On, on the journey to the title. Anyway, let's move yeah. on to the next stop. Let's, <laughs> indeed. And yes. This is an uh, edition, by the way. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you done, or should we should we carry on? I'm, I'm, ne- I'm never done. We'll have more next week. Go on. I'm going to move on to Dave Tyndall, um, who was just mentioned there. Yeah. He said, I really, enjoy, I really enjoyed the feature last week when you attempted to predict the semi-finalists of this year's World Championship. So, having recreated the 1982 World Championship of various pop blacks, including a left-hander special one by Perry Manns, I decided the logical next step was to go from the past to the future. So, inspired by your good selves, I'm currently playing out the 2020 World Championship. Brilliant. So far in my version, held in the all-seater cesspit of bitterness arena. Now, of course... <laughs> Of course, that was your phrase from last week, which we'll return oh, to, actually. This, this, is, yeah. this is well, this has made my day, this. Yeah. We'll, re- we'll return to that phrase because, yeah. Um, he said there was carnage in the top of the draw. Jambing Tao beat Judd Trump. Dave Gilbert routed John Higgins. And Jack Nazowski dumped out Mark Allen. The bottom half went more to form. So my last eight looks like this. Jambing Tao versus Karen Wilson. Dave Gilbert versus Jack Nazowski. And then Stuart Bingham versus Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Selby versus Neil Robertson. Pretty good lineup, I would say. Of course, he hasn't not got any qualifiers in there because he doesn't know yeah. who they're going to be. So I'll let you know who lifts the trophy next week. I mean, talk about a cliffhanger. You 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 were talking about Dallas there. This is this is the proper stuff. No, I, then, I, I can't wait. I just can't wait. I say we go around to Dave's house and watch this unfold. Well, of course, and, we probably can't because it probably has to be played behind closed doors. Yeah, he says. P.S. If Neil Robertson makes the final, I plan to order a curly blonde wig to reflect. <laughs> to reflect his astonishing lockdown hairdo, which made him resemble a young David Gower or Henry off Neighbours. Now, you're showing your age there, Dave. Henry off Neighbours. Speaking of which, speaking of which, I, I think I messaged you last week because someone worked out, inevitably on Twitter, that uh, well, I think it was last Friday, 
was the 32nd wedding anniversary of Scott and Charlene from Neighbours, which just is frightening, really. Yeah, I, I, I said I couldn't believe it had come around so suddenly. Yeah. I mean, at least 80% of the audience aren't, aren't going to get these. I'm disputing that, by the way. I think it was later in the year, but anyway, oh, that's, well, that's way too much of a tangent to go off on. Well, it may have been in Australia when it was broadcast, and then obviously we, we were several months later, so maybe that was... Um, yeah, maybe maybe but on the cesspit of bitterness, which is what you, <laughs> which is what you labelled basically all of social media, yeah. and I, I, I suspect Twitter was was in your sites really. Well, mostly Twitter, yeah. Facebook, yeah. not so well, bad, but yeah, mostly. Yeah. Well, here is the exact opposite of that. Okay, and this is nothing to do with snooker, but it, it, re- it represents our uh, increasing music theme, right? Yeah. This week's this week it was Ringo Starr's 80th birthday. Okay, yeah. and he and he got a message of happy birthday from. Pete Best. <laughs> now, oh, wow. Now, you, yeah. talk about, you talk about magnanimous. I mean, of all the people to send Ringo Starr a happy birthday message, Pete Best. So, you see, there is good out there, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, actually, I, again, some people might not know who Pete Best is, so why don't you explain it there? Well, Pete Best, I mean, if you don't, then shame on you. But, uh, but <laughs> Pete Best was the original drummer in the Beatles, and just before they hit the big time, they got rid of him. They sacked him. They brought in Ringo Starr, and Ringo Starr was on all the famous albums and became became Ringo Starr. You know, and, and he was... sang. He actually sang lead vocals on quite a few of the Beatles' most famous songs, "Yellow Submarine" and yes. "Octopus's Garden." Little help from my friends. I think he sang on that as well. Anyway, can we get this back to snooker? Well, I'll do my best. Um, John Bennett is next. He said, I love your podcast as I'm very much into the niche that Michael and yourself often provide. Well, I think this episode could be uh, could be going your way then in that case, John. I've been a super fan since I was about nine, over 40 years ago. Would like to nominate a book probably suited to those of a certain age. It's called Higgins, Taylor and Me by the late Jim Meadowcroft. Oh, yeah, I know this one, yeah. Someone was talking about this in Milton Keynes. I can't remember who it was now, but, um, yeah, it's a book. I, I'm not sure I actually ever read it, but Jim Meadowcroft, he sort of – he. he practiced a lot with, with those two in the northwest when Higgins and Taylor came over originally from Northern Ireland and would, would have been of their era of course they became world champions he was a, he was better known he was a player himself but better known I guess as a, as a commentator he was commentating on the Black Ball final in 85 with Ted Lowe he said also he says also uh, have you read a book I can't seem to get hold of it's called a sometimes seen on TV by Stuart Petman well in fact we did mention that the other week yeah we mentioned it. I'd love to get a copy. I'll have a look, John, if to see if I've if I've still got one. I may do. If, if I have, I'll I'll do my best to get it to you. He said, uh, just for a bit of fun, I'll give my predictions for the last four of the World Championship. He's got Judd Trump, John Higgins, Ronnie O'Sullivan, and Neil Robertson. So you know, I mean, that's a pretty that is a fab four, a fab four yeah, to continue the. It all comes full circle. Jim Meadowcroft, actually, the thing about him is that. He's the only person I know of who, well, okay, there was a tournament in Japan in 1987 that Dennis won, actually. Um, I think he got a samurai helmet in, in lieu of a trophy. But, um, but the, uh, about maybe 18 months after that, Jim Meadowcroft, uh, Meadowcroft actually went on a tour to Japan to coach players over there and promote the game and see if it might take off over there, which I guess was a good idea. I mean, you look at, you know, when the Japanese take to a sport, they take to it massively. I mean, golf baseball or obvious examples uh, but i know he went over there on a tour i think it was maybe in the early months of 1989 unfortunately it didn't you know nothing really came of it and no players emerged from there but uh, that's one thing i i remember about uh, jim he, he was one of those people who kind of got involved in everything didn't he because he, i think he was on the board for a while and hmm. as you say he was involved in commentary and uh, coaching as well and uh, a bit of uh, well snooker missionary work i suppose in, in japan 
Uh, John also has nominated four outsiders he thinks are going to do well. Of course, first they've got to get there, but he's four outsiders to watch are Anthony McGill, Ryan Day, Jimmy Robertson and Tepchara Nu. Uh, McGill is an interesting one there because, of course, he did uh, you know, do very well at the Crucible a few years ago. In fact, he did well in general, didn't he? Won a couple of tournaments, yeah. got, in the, got in the top 16, and then, for whatever reason, just seemed to go backwards. And he's sort of mired in that sort of, you know, sort of late 30s in the rankings, trying to even get back in the 32. I suppose... You know, as we know, it kind of takes one one good tournament. You've got to think he'll come good again, but for whatever reason, he's just just been struggling a little bit. Yeah, he, he's a part of that uh, unit with uh, John Higgins and Stephen Maguire. They have that industrial unit in Glasgow, and they practice together. And I think it's certainly worked very well for Stephen Maguire. I think it's worked pretty well for John Higgins as well. And I, I think we felt Anthony McGill, given his obvious potential, back practicing with those guys, players of that quality, on a daily basis, we might see him back up near the top of the rankings but it hasn't actually happened and they've been at that for a couple of years now so he's still pretty young he's still got time to turn it around but it's a bit of a mystery because he wasn't someone who just had the all good tournament here and there there was a period of about a year when he was extremely consistent but uh, as you say it just kind of fell off a cliff after that and he mentions Jimmy Robertson there I'd love to see Jimmy do well he's a really good guy and obviously won the European Masters huge moment for him a bit out of the blue hasn't really built on it since then so it'd be great to see him doing well. And we mentioned on New last week, I mean, the style he plays in, it will be wonderful for the World Championship. Also, of course, the fact that he's you know, from Thailand, uh, it would be wonderful if he was to go on a run there. Yeah, I, I completely agree with everything that you just said. Uh, we're going to move on now to James Cook. Now, he we, we labelled him Chevy Chase last week because he's... <laughs> essentially driving around America, living the high life, it's got to be said. He says, greetings from your US correspondent. I normally write it earlier in the week than now, but it's been the 4th of July weekend. So I took a day off work. Also, the COVID refugee tour continues. And this week, you find your correspondent in Moab in the state of Utah, currently in a, tra- currently in a trailer park with a view of Archie's National Park. And he's attached a photo, I think really just to rub it in. Because <laughs> again, again, it looks fantastic. He said, during a hike through some astounding scenery, all right, James, <laughs> you're rubbing it in. I enhance the experience infinitely by listening to your latest podcast. Once again, thanks for the name check and glad the topic of the applause button elicited such debate. I think it would still be a good option for the viewers. On to the topics at hand. In terms of the predicted four World Championship semi-finalists, although not a Trump fan, president nor snooker player, I can't see how he, Judd, not Donald, is not in your top four. Well, actually, I think he was, wasn't he? In, in what, sorry? In, in our what, top in four last week. Four? Yeah, I think we did have Trump last week. In our semi-finalists, yeah. We, yeah. We, yeah, we had him playing Mark Allen, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, I think maybe the, the altitude or something got to the got to the headphones there. Anyway, he says, otherwise, I broadly agree with your expert opinions. It would be great to see Robbo win again, but probably, predictably, I think Ronnie O'Sullivan will prevail. Anyway, I'll be watching it in a tent in Montana, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes on to talk about book selections. He says, thanks for the, the book recommendations. I read Clive Everton's Black Farce, he did get a bit bogged down in the middle, he said. Well, it's fair to say there is. it becomes rather political because it goes into the, the way the game was, um, you know, the power battle to run the game. He says, I'm currently reading and enjoying Pocket Money. It's an interesting writing style, fun and good read. Me and the table, he, he tells a story here. I'm going to have to cut this a little short because we're already over half an hour and we haven't even got to the topic, main topic yet. But essentially, he, he was dared by his kids to, to go up to Stephen Hendry uh, when he was signing his book and asking what his favourite colour was, um, which he which which he which he duly did, and Hendry's response was khaki. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's a little anecdote. He's, he's attached a picture of himself with uh, Hendry, and it's got to be said, 
it's got to be said, there's a, I know people can't see this, but believe me, there's a touch of the Tony Knowles about James Cook, and that, that is a compliment, James, I have to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. You mentioned Utah there, didn't you? That's where the Mormons yeah. have, have their base. Just, I mean, well, listen, we've gone off on so many tangents, another one isn't going to hurt us. Mm. Um, so speaking of the Mormons, I actually grew up in a street where one of the houses, the resident, was a Mormon bishop. <laughs> he was also in a band called the Cottonwool Boys, who released a cover of The Devil Went Down to Georgia. But anyway, we'll, do, uh, we'll get back to that another day, I'm sure. Well, we, we've gone from Harold Bishop to a Mormon Bishop. But anyway, uh, yes, we've not been drinking, by the way. We just, we just we just enjoying ourselves. Right. We move on. The last email is from David O'Neill. Now, David, this your email was very interesting, but it was also very long. So I've had to cut a few bits out of it. But I will uh, plow on to the main points. He says this, he says, a few thoughts inspired by your brilliant recent podcast and reflecting on some of the history of the game over the lockdown period. I think the 1985 final is harshly used as a yardstick of quality when comparing eras based on the fact there was no century scored during the final. With the help of the incredible Q-Tracker site, I've gathered some interesting stats on finals in the Crucible era. Indeed, 1985 is the only final where there wasn't a century scored by either player. Dennis Taylor's 98 was the highest, but there were plenty of 50-plus breaks, Steve Davies making nine and Taylor making 13. Stephen Hendry only bettered that total on two occasions in all of his world finals. Interestingly, another 1817 classic, White v Hendry in 94, only produced one century, and that was by White. Other interesting related stats from other finals, Joe Johnson's iconic 1986 win is always described as a great free-flowing performance, which it was. But Joe only scored seven breaks over 50 with no centuries, while Davis managed 300-plus breaks. In 1997, Ken Doherty's win was won with just eight 50-plus breaks and no centuries. Finally, Neil Robertson, one of the great modern ton machines, only made one in his final win. So all this highlights a couple of things for me, that the centuries tally, career match or otherwise, doesn't necessarily mean that much, and certainly not in terms of coming away with a trophy. Imagine how many Jimmy White could have got had he focused more on clearing up once the frame was over and with today's mentality. Mark Williams isn't judged any less of a player than any of the other modern greats because his century rate is a little down from his peers. Another thing is that tension and excitement in snooker is often born out of scrappy frames, misses, tight frame scores and safety battles, etc., as it did in the 1985 final, as many of the crunch moments towards the end where there were lots of mistakes being, well, there were lots of mistakes being made as well. Well, all that's true. I mean, obviously, a century break is going to win you a frame. That's the first thing to say. Um, but a clearance, psychologically, can be more important. If you clear up from 60 behind with 65 or something, that's going to hurt your opponent probably more than you make in a century. Um, yeah, but I think that, that's all fair common. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with all. In fact, I've made a lot of those points in recent weeks. The 85 final, people say, oh, the standard wasn't good. That's because they only watched the final frame. And... <laughs> You know, actually, during that final, most of the frames that Dennis won, he made, you know, at least a half century, which certainly at that time was pretty good standard. I think now it would uh, seem reasonably good. So, yeah, I, I agree with all the things that are said there. And I've said a number of times, I think too much is made of centuries. Now, I suppose it's the obvious yardstick to measure break building by, because why would you pick, say, 70 or 80 as the obvious yardstick? Uh, but as you say, I mean, a break of 70 or 80 is generally going to win your frame. The only player I can ever think of who made an 80 break and didn't win the frame was our, our good friend Neil Foley <laughs> against uh, against Willie Thorne all those years ago. Yes, I mean, the 85 final, it's a bit like uh, when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in the theatre. You know, nobody talked about the play, did they? And the point with the 85 final is no one talks about the rest of the match. They might say, oh, he was 8-0 down, but it always comes down to that battle on the black. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that they, they're fair comments. Uh, his next point is this. He says, uh, with the huge increase in ranking tournaments over the last few years, is it time to draw a line and say from, for example, 2016, when saying that's their second ranking title win, etc.? 
Um, you can't. You just can't compare successful modern players' tally of tournament wins to the past winners. Many old greats of the game have little to no ranking titles to their name. And I always thought it was a little disingenuous to tally up Steve Davis's total at just 28 when the likes of his early UK wins and many others weren't classed as ranking titles. It's changed again, and even Hendry's final tally now looks small in terms of what's available each season. Well, I was thinking about this, and yeah, I mean, times change and the number of tournaments change, and that, you know, it's great news. We've got more now. I suppose one way of doing it, you could... You, maybe the answer is that it should be a player's number of ranking titles by percentage of how many ranking tournaments they've played in. So you can tally, I know I haven't done this, by the way, but you can tally up, for example, to how many Stephen Hendry played in, you know, probably over 200, maybe 300, I don't know. But he won 36. Uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan has also won 36. Has he played in more or less than Hendry? Probably more now because he's been playing longer. Um, so maybe that's one way to do it. Again, you know, the sport has changed. There's more tournaments. It's true that Davis won UK titles that weren't classed as ranking events, but the reason for that is they weren't open to everyone. They weren't open to basically non, uh, non-British residents. Yeah, and I don't think it would get people's attention that much if you said this is the record for the highest percentage number of ranking tournaments won. I think people might sort of regard that as a bit obscure, even though, as you point out, it might in some ways be fairer. I think if you're actually saying, I mean, it's still, a, it's just a, a fact that, someone has won more tournaments now whether you know without the context of it and they might have played in more tournaments but still your actual number of ranking tournaments won is, is just a statement of fact rather than mm. than anything else so um y- you could also look at it the other way that there were fewer ranking events back in the day but maybe there were also fewer players who were realistically going in as contenders to win them you could make that argument you, you could also maybe argue that that wasn't the case because we used to see a lot of surprise winners as well but I think when it comes to it, put it this way, even if it did become the established thing to base it on percentages, if someone's actual tally of ranking titles was, say, about to overtake someone else's, we wouldn't be able to resist mentioning that as well. So maybe the two things could exist uh, side by side. But like I say, just the actual number of ranking tournaments someone has won is, is simply a statement of fact. Yeah, I think I think one of the issues, and this is sort of where fandom comes into it, a lot of people will use the stat that best represents the player they like the most. Yeah. So they'll find they'll find a stat that they can like some percentage or whatever that they can best represent whoever. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll crack on with the rest of this. He says, uh, "My first e- this is from by the way." Uh, David O'Neill, just to remind you. So my first memory of snooker was watching the 1988 World Championship. I was rooting for Terry Griffiths in the final. Now, this is this is the niche stuff here. He said, did he also kick the big plastic globe that was part of the set near the table that year? It was another year. Or did I make that up? No, he did. He, he, it was the embassy globe, and, and yeah, he somehow knocked it off, the, off its moorings. He then says, can you explain what you mean when you say the game went open in 1991? What did you have to do to turn pro before? What was the reason for the change? Well, the main reason for the change was financial, actually. It, when, the game went open in 91, so what that meant was before it was a closed shop, it was 128 players. There were various ways of becoming a professional. In the early days, a committee had to approve you. And quite often in the early days, they were basically a really talented player. They would not accept because they were players themselves. They didn't want anyone too good joining them. But eventually it developed. There were various ways of getting on. There was a pro ticket system, a qualifying system, a little bit like Q school, really. Uh, But when the game went open, the decision was made, Okay, anyone with the money to enter the tournament and pay the, the membership fee can become a professional. So you went from 128 players to 700. And it was literally anyone I could have entered, had I been old enough, anyone could have entered. And of course, a lot of people who did enter were just not good enough. They might have been all right in their club. They were nowhere near the professional standard. Of course, Fergal O'Brien, who we mentioned earlier, he was one of the original intake. There aren't many left now. I think Anthony Hamilton, uh, Mike Dunn, Mark King, they're all still on the circuit. A few, of course, turned pro before that. 
likes of Jimmy and Ken and Alan McManus and so on. Uh, but that's essentially it. It went open. John Spence was chairman. It was a way of making money, but it, it definitely was a good move because it, 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 it provided an influx of young players into the sport. Of course, the year after it was the, the class of 92, Ronnie and, and Higgins and Williams. Um, so it was a good move. What it was motivated by, I guess now is irrelevant, really. Um, so that, that essentially answers that. There's a question here, which we can't answer briefly. Maybe we'll do it another time, which is who is the greatest one-time world champion? That's, 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 a, that's a discussion in itself. So we'll, we'll gloss over that. And I'm afraid, I'm sorry about this, David, but because we are now seriously kind of overrunning you make some good points about Joe Davis, but maybe again we will uh, deal with those at another time. Because how long are we going now? Forty-two minutes. We're now ready to start the main topic of discussion. But that, by the way, thanks for all the emails. I read them all. I'm sorry I couldn't get them all out this week, but keep them coming. Snooker Scene Podcast at mail dot com is the address. But you, well, you had the idea for this week's topic, so why don't you introduce it? Yeah, just uh, we're going to hear a lot uh, over the next few weeks, the term curse of the crucible. Now, I feel about that term much the same way that you feel about the triple crown, <laughs> because basically what it, what it comes down to is that no player who has won at the crucible for the first time has then gone back and retained the title the following year, which isn't a bad stat in itself. But you look at the, the, the facts of it. Of all the players who have won at the crucible, only six have ever gone on to win there again at any stage of their careers. And they're arguably the six greatest players of all time. Also, in terms of successfully defending at any point, only four players, isn't it, have done that? Henry, Davis, O'Sullivan and Selby. So again, we're talking pretty big company there. So I think the fact that nobody has managed to successfully defend it the year after they've won it for the first time is massively overplayed. And the idea that it's the curse of the crucible, I mean, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, uh, like, like it's it's so obscure. Maybe if nobody had ever retained it, it's as if you know there's some ghost hanging around the crucible, you know, trying to uh, trying to stop it. I w- I'm just going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, and I know of some people listening in Ireland, but it's it's a similar thing that um, the Mayo football team. Mayo was one of the biggest counties in Ireland. They won the All Ireland Football Championship. I think it was 1951, and they haven't won it again since. They've been in the final something like seven or eight times. And this legend has built up that when the Mayo team were coming home with the trophy, they interrupted a funeral procession that was going on. And so the legend goes, it's nonsense, of course, but the legend goes (laughs) that the woman whose funeral it was put a curse on Mayo that said that Mayo would not win another All-Ireland until all of that team were dead. Only about four or five of them left. And they actually seriously get people coming up to them saying, would you not hurry up and die so we can win another All-Ireland? So, I mean, that, that's the kind of level of nonsense we're dealing with when people say the curse of the crucible. Nevertheless, aside from that, what is interesting about first-time defending champions isn't so much the fact that none of them have won it, but the fact that so many of them have actually done so badly the following year, and no, never more so than in recent times. And, of course, you know, players have said about this in the past, it is unusual when you find yourself, you've scaled that mountain, you've become world champion, you've achieved your life's dream, then when you have to go back and start playing in regular tournaments the following season, a lot of players have struggled with that. Some, of course, have absolutely thrived on it. So I think that's an interesting topic to get into. Well, I think the business with the, the – I think you're right to tie the Crucible curse with the Triple Crown thing because, in a way, they're both self-fulfilling. The Triple Crown has become a thing, so people are bought into it. Um, you know, it's, it's an artificial thing, but now people – it's an accepted thing as well now. People buy into it. And the Crucible curse, because you just heard the term so often – 
people are bought into it. Um, and But it's also, it is a fact that no first-time champion has defended the title, whereas they have, for example, if you want to talk Triple Crown, uh, they have in the Masters, they have in the UK Championship. Um, it's not happened at the World Championship. The reason, of course, is very similar. It's a really difficult tournament to win once, never mind twice, never mind two years running. Um, but it's also true, I think, to say that the champion does arrive there because they play that first session and it's the first finish on the on the, on the the first night. They are, I mean, Steve Davis said it. He said, he actually said in a press conference, he said, the first shock hasn't happened yet and it could be you. You know, you, you're first out of the traps and... All the expectation, the build-up to the to, to, to the championship is always big. The anticipation, you're out there, and I guess also, yeah, you know, I mean, we wouldn't know, but you must walk out, and all the memories just come flooding back from the year before. It might be quite hard just to settle down and think, okay, I've got, I'm starting again. Definitely, and I, I think you you almost, if you win the world championship, obviously your memories of the crucible are going to be burnt into your brain all the, the lights and the cameras going off mm. and the huge cheering and being presented with the trophy and the wonderful, wonderful high it must give you. And then I wonder if subconsciously you half expect when you walk back into the Crucible 50 weeks later that it's going to be the same again. And it isn't, of course. It's quiet and you've got a snooker match to play. And maybe there's just a little bit of anti-climax. I think also you build up to it so much because it is such a tradition that you play that first match uh, that I wonder, do you become a bit distracted by that? I think Stuart Bingham certainly did. Uh, he was the last first-time champion going back there the following year. And I think he went 5-1 down, didn't he, against Ali Carter. And by the time he started playing, he had given Carter such a strong uh, foothold in the match that he ended up having too much ground to make up. So I think that there may be an element of that about it as well. And also, it's such a slog and such an effort to win the World Championship. And then you almost perhaps forget just how hard it is. You're back there a year later and you have to try and climb that mountain again. Yeah, and also there's a there's a target painted on your back, isn't there? You know, you're the champion. Yeah. You, you're holding the trophy. That's why it's interesting. The player, there's two players, first time champions have actually made the final the following year. One was Ken in '97, and the first was Joe Johnson in '80. Sorry, Ken was '98, obviously. Uh, Joe Johnson in in '87, and Joe got the nearest because he he won more frames than Ken in the final. But what's interesting about that is there was no expectation on Joe really going there because he'd had a terrible season as world champion. Part of the problem was because, and this is, I guess, why not every world champion in a way is equal in terms of how we see them. There's two categories of world champion. There's a player who was just expected to become world champion. So Stephen Hendry is the perfect example of that. He'd already won the UK and the Masters that season, going to the Crucible in 1990. Everyone just thought, yeah, of course, Hendry, if not this year, will win it. And he duly did. Someone like Joe was not expected to become world champion. So while Hendry was already a top player, adjusting to winning tournaments and enjoying the fact, enjoying his status, Joe had to get used to it. And it was very difficult. This was the mid 80s. Snooker had never been more popular. He was on all chat shows. He was, you know, doing exhibitions, earning a lot of money away from tournaments. Definitely affected his play in tournaments. I mean, for a lot of time, he told me, you know, the only time I was actually on a snooker table was when I was um, when I was playing in a tournament. I wasn't practicing because I didn't have time to. Um, so he, but he, so he had a terrible season. Went to the Crucible. No one really thought he would do much, and maybe he didn't think he would do much. All of a sudden, finds a bit of form, gets through a difficult first round against Eugene Hughes, finds a bit of form, and finds himself in the final again. Yeah, he nearly went out a couple of times. He had to survive two deciders, the one against Eugene Hughes, you mentioned, and then the one against Stephen Hendry mm. in the quarterfinals, who I think Hendry, even though he was so young and playing the defending champion, was probably fancied to beat him. In a funny sort of way, though, because I've talked to Joe about this as well, the bad season that he had almost worked in his favour because he had realised that, that he had 
neglected the game, not for any fault of his own. He was saying that he was just being asked to do so much stuff and he didn't like saying no to people. So he said to his manager at the time, I need to get away and I need to prepare properly for the World Championship. And because it had been so hard to do that, his manager arranged for him to go off somewhere and play in a place where nobody could reach him, nobody could get to him. This obviously was in the pre-mobile phone era as well, which certainly helped with that. And he went to the Crucible having actually prepared much better than he had for any other tournament through the season. And I think he had perhaps been driven to do that by the struggles he'd had during that campaign. And as you say, he went very close. I think he was only 14, 13 down mm. at one stage. Uh, and then Steve obviously pulled away a bit towards the end and, and won 18-14. But it was, the, it was almost the perfect way for Joe's year as champion to end because you just wonder deep down, did he almost want to go through another year like that? And now, of course, he wouldn't have turned down the world title if he'd won it. But in a way, maybe that was the best thing for him to go back, put up a great defence for the title and then let somebody else live with the pressure for the next year. Yeah, and, and the other thing in terms of losing on the first day, the draw is huge as well. I mean, Neil Robertson drew Judd Trump, who just won the China Open, you know, so he was going there, a young lad, 21, with a title under his belt, feeling a million dollars already. Robertson was under pressure as defending champion. Bingham, who you mentioned, drew Ali Carter, who was probably the toughest qualifier you could have drawn that year. So it's not always about just the fact you're the defending champion. It's often the fact that, you know, you've got that, you've got that tough match to play. I mean, a, a game of snooker can go either way. Yeah, and I mean, it's become more and more the case that defending, first-time defending champions are struggling. And again, I think that reflects that the draws are that bit deeper now. The last four first-time champions have gone back to defend the title have won a total of one match between them. <laughs> and, and that was only just, that was Mark Selby in 2015. He ended up having to go to a decider before seeing off Kurt, off Kurt Mafflin. Mm. Then he lost in the next round to Anthony McGill, who we mentioned earlier. Um, but the others, Graham Dot, Neil Robertson and Stuart Bingham, who we were just talking about, were all beaten in the first round. And again, they were all up against very good players. I mean, Dot played Ian McCulloch, who had been a world uh, semi-finalist uh, in the past. Robertson, as you say, played Trump. And Bingham, uh, as you mentioned, play, played Ali Carter. So you look back to earlier times, perhaps players who were going back to defend the title were up against guys who they were very, very unlikely to lose to. I think also we can widen this out slightly and, and sort of look at the, the, the year of a world champion. You know, we mentioned Joe struggling for results um, because of his time. I mean, he'd gone from world number 16, basically a sort of obscure figure in the sport, to a national figure and, you know, very hard to adjust to. But again, in terms of how players do the next season, it, it's kind of varied. And this links back to what we were saying earlier about the way the number of tournaments has changed. When Sean Murphy was world champion, he had six ranking events, I think, to play the next season. And, of course, if you trip up in a couple early on, you bang under it for the rest of this, the year. I think he got to the Welsh Open final, so he did get, yeah, to, a final, did. Did get to a final. But contrast that with Judd Trump this year, who's got something, who's had something like 17, I think, ranking events, something like that, to play in. And he hasn't played in, in it, every one of them. He didn't play in Riga, but came back, won his first one. And because he's been so successful, Trump, winning six titles, apart from when he lost to Nigel Bond in the UK Championship, can people even remember who beat him early in the other tournaments? He did lose early in a few events, but that's been completely dwarfed by having all these other tournaments to play in and, and winning them. So I, I guess some first-time champions, what I'm saying is, didn't really have the sort of the ideal number of events to ease themselves into the new uh, the new normal of suddenly being on the TV, suddenly, you know, being asked for interviews after every match. Just a very different uh, feel for a lot of them. A lot of guys, Graham Dot will be only the, the guy that you, know, you would speak to maybe every three tournaments you're speaking to after every match. Yeah. Yeah. 
did you could compare that though i mean it just shows you how remarkable it was what stephen hendry did in his year as world champion for the first time there were only eight ranking events so that meant there had been seven before the crucible he'd won five of them and been in the final of another and then i i think in a way it almost counted against him then when he got to the crucible because the expectation on him was massive and from him as much as anybody else and he, of course, got to the quarterfinals in 91 uh, and was beaten by Steve James. And it's funny now, it's 29 years ago, so it's hard to remember. But my memory of that match is that towards the end, Henry knew he should have won that match. Of course, he should beat Steve James over three sessions. And when it became, you know, an immediate possibility, as it were, that he might lose the match, he really seemed to be under it. Whereas Steve James, on the other hand, on the brink of the result of a lifetime, really seemed to thrive on it and mm. really relished the prospect of achieving that. So it was funny how that went. And I wonder, perhaps, if Henry hadn't had quite such a good season going into it, would there have been quite the same weight of expectation being imposed on him by himself and by everybody else? And maybe he would have gone better. No, I think that's a fair point. But I guess, to go back to what I was saying about Murphy, of course, the World Championship, and it's the same with Joe, is the first ranking event that ever won. Henry... He had a fantastic season, you're right, as world champion, but he'd already won big titles. He'd won the Masters, he'd won the UK Championship. So I guess for him, it was just a sort of continuation. I think that's why it's, Trump's been so impressive. The fact that he's just carried on winning, you know, there hasn't been any sort of re- negative reaction to being world champion. It's all been positive. Whereas you look at some players, even Ronnie didn't have a great season, you know, his first year. He won the UK Championship, fair enough. But I think that was the only ranking event he won that, that whole season. Uh, certainly, I can't remember any others he won. I think you're right and yeah he didn't he didn't do a great deal else no so it's interesting how i think the 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 different like you say expectations that other people put on you but i think more important that you put on yourself you know you're world champion you're representing the sport you've become a big big figure and here's the key thing as well this is the key thing everyone wants to beat you now yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's not it's not just sean or graham or or, or nil whoever it's the world champion and they will raise their game against you because suddenly you're a big scalp yeah, and also, I think history has played a part in it as well because it has become such a thing that so many defending champions have been beaten in the opening round that, again, it, it almost puts that... It, it's in your head, put it that way. You know that it's happened to so many players, and not just first-time defending champions as well, just the fact that so many players have won it and then lost in the first round the next year. I mean, you think of Dennis Taylor, the most famous and perhaps best known of all world title wins he went back the next year and ended up losing 10-6 to Mike Hallett but actually it, it wasn't even as close as that at all because Hallett had streaked away into a massive lead before Dennis staged a bit of a comeback so I think the fact that we've seen it happen so often even think of Stephen Henry the last time he defended the title lost to Stuart Bingham in the first round when Bingham you know was nowhere near being a leading player so I think the history the fact that it has happened so often definitely plays on players' minds as well. You even look at John Higgins. I mean, he's never lost there in the first round uh, as defending champion. But of the four times he's gone back there to defend it, he's only got past the second round once. And that was the the one time that he got anywhere near retaining it. Funny enough, it was uh, when he was back there as a first-time champion in 1999. Here's a question that is both impossible to answer, but what I'm going to ask anyway, okay? If the defending champion didn't play on the first day, say they played on day three or, or day four, whatever, do you think as many of them would have gone out in the first round? Yeah, it's a good question, but as you say, <laughs> you say, yeah, it's impossible to answer, so I won't answer it. No, um, I don't know that it would make a massive difference, put it that way. Yeah, it's, just, it's, mm. it's hard to imagine that, though, isn't it, the defending champion not playing the opening match because, because we're so accustomed to it. Although, of course, in the early days of the Crucible, 
it was a 24-man field. So you, you had, and the top eight were seeded straight through to the last 16. So you actually had a whole round played before the defending champion came in. But I think sure. a couple of times then, uh, even in those circumstances, the defending champion lost their opening match. Terry certainly did it in 1980. Well, here's the thing. Despite your, or maybe because of your rage against the uh, the Crucible Curse, of course, if if Judd Trump does win it this year, that will be the story, won't it? The story will be he's, he's beat the curse. Well, I suppose it will be, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I won't be calling any exorcists or anything in, in no. the meantime. Yeah. So, uh, but, but we will say this though, and I mean, it's a pretty obvious thing to say. Very few first-time defending champions, probably only Stephen Hendry, um, you know, will ever have gone to the Crucible so well equipped to to go back and retain it as Trump will this time. I agree, except I think he was better equipped uh, had it gone ahead in April. Sure, um, yeah. I mean, all, I mean, obviously, you know, there's much more important things here, but he was he had all the momentum then. It's definitely resulted, and you know, his performances. Championship League, you can't really look at too much, but the Tour Championship, you know, obviously he he, he didn't didn't uh, do too well in in his second match, and regardless of his own excuses for it, you know, Maguire played well, so um, it'd be interesting. Look, there's so much to think about this year. The good news is the World Championship is on, so these questions will be answered. Um, Judd Trump, of course, not playing on a Saturday; he's playing on a Friday for the yeah. first time, I think, since 1995. I think that was the last time it started Friday. I was about to ask you that, actually. Yeah, and it mm. was 95. Now, uh, now here's here's a very tough one for you, right? So mm. who did the defending champion, i.e. Stephen Hendry, as it always was in those days, play on the opening day the last time the championship started on a Friday? Well, I've got, I have got the Chris Lambert out here, but I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to no. get it's, – it's not Surrender Gill. I think that was the year before. That was 94, yeah. Was it Jason Ferguson? It wasn't. No, it, oh. he was 96, actually. No, oh. it was um, – Stefan Mazrosis. Ah, yes. In, in 95, yeah. Just, yeah. just while we're on that, actually, and I'm just, just thinking before we move off the topic of, of first-time defending champions, and indeed, in his case, only-time defending champion because he didn't win it again, and he's retired now, Peter Ebden. Mm. I remember sitting in the Crucible Arena when he got through the first couple of rounds. He played Paul Hunter in the quarterfinals. And of all the times I've sat in that arena, there have been very few occasions as tense as the decider uh, between Ebden and Paul Hunter in the last eight. And I think Ebden was in, he had a decent enough chance to win. Seemed to remember he missed a red to the middle. And then Hunter went on to take the frame. Ebden went back to his dressing room after that. And we know he was a very intense character, uh, both on and off the table. He sat in his dressing room and cried his eyes out afterwards, just because it meant so much to him to be there as as, as world champion. And he just couldn't take, couldn't bear the fact that um, his title had gone. So that just shows you, you know, what being defending champion can do to people. Absolutely. Although, as Ken Doherty said in that interview I referenced earlier with WST, they can't rub your name off the trophy. You know, once you're on, you're on. And, and uh, they, they will always be on. Of course, Ebden has just retired. Well, we are also going to retire, I think, now because we've been at it for an hour. Uh, a lot of topics covered, a lot more to cover in the next couple of weeks, though, building up uh, first to the qualifiers and then to the World Championship itself, which uh, is still due to start on July the 31st. As I say, we don't know the situation with an audience yet, but more will be uh, discovered, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. And also, of course, the draw. We would like to see the qualifying draw as we are recording this on this Wednesday afternoon. That's still yet to come out. Everyone looking forward to see who is going to play who. But uh, if you want to get in contact with anything you've heard or want to suggest any new topics, and there are, are a few still in the emails that we haven't had a chance to deal with yet, the email address is snookerscenepodcast.com at mail.com 
um, and also let, let us know where in the world you are. We always like to hear from people around the world, um, hopefully looking ahead to the World Championship, which is always a great television event, I think, wherever you live. And, of course, now the great news is more people than ever can actually watch it through various uh, through their various platforms. Um, but that is it, unless you've got anything else to say. No, not, not, not at all. Not at all. I mean, you know, you're talking there about all the, the platforms that people can uh, can watch it on. And judging by the emails we get, I mean, it's now available in pretty much every country in the world. If you have an Internet connection and judging from the emails we're getting, it's, it's going to be watched in, in a lot more countries than you would traditionally have expected some years ago. Yeah. And on that, actually, I should say, like I said at the start, I get the analytics through Apple. The podcast, once the the I'm not a great expert. I mean, it's amazing, honestly, that this ever gets you can listen to it. I'm not a great expert in how it works, but there's basically there's a, there's a feed that once it, it goes out there can be picked up by, you know, lots of different sites. So there's lots of podcast providers, many of whom I've never heard of, where this podcast is available. So how many people listen and where they listen, I couldn't I couldn't say, but I'm listen, I'm glad anybody is, and I hope you're enjoying it, and we will uh, return next week. And uh, until then, take care, everybody, and we'll see you soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.